Good morning and welcome to your favorite Friday morning podcast, Conversations with Buddy, brought to you by The Wreck, way more than a bowling alley. Question for you, are you feeling impacted each week? Are you grateful to hear the stories and testimonies behind each person? Does a podcast challenge you to step up and step out in faith, courage, and boldness to share the important things in life, like your trials, your pain, and your hope? We give you the ability to connect each week with our guests because we believe people matter, you matter. We are grateful to all the listeners who take the time each week to hear the stories of our guests. Please help us grow the show by taking a moment right now and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and give us a review. Our purpose of this podcast is to impact the world one testimony at a time. This morning, I am truly excited and grateful to introduce to you my guest and friend, Gabe Johansson. Welcome, Gabe. Hey, buddy. Thanks for having me. Dude, thanks for being here, man. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited, man. I've been praying for this moment where you and I get a, a moment just to talk. Yeah. Uh, your name, I'm not joking. I said it to you a couple weeks ago when I was inviting you to the podcast was, your name gets mentioned a lot by a lot of different people. You're impacting people in a lot of ways. So anyway, I pray about who I'm going to have on my podcast and you're the guy that I was praying about and and uh, I sent you a video. You said yes, so here we are. That's awesome. I'm honored to be here. Well, cool. Well, let me do just a quick intro of who you are, Gabe. You and I have known each other for maybe 10 or 15, 20 years. I don't know. Probably close to 20, yeah. Probably close yeah. to 20. We've done this several times before. Just yeah, not, lots of conversations. Not on the air. <laughs> yep, over, over coffee. But Well, let me introduce you, and then we'll dive into okay. the deep questions that I'm just dying to ask you. And, and like you said, you're... A transparent guy, so... Open book. Open book, man. Fire away. All right. Number one, <laughs> you are the president and CEO of the SMI family of companies, including SMI Real Estate and SMI Property Management. And I think there's a few more. You also have a, a finance side, and so we'll dive into that a little bit more, okay. but there's more to that than just those two. Yep. Is that true? Yep. Okay. You're a member of the local recovery community with nearly 20 years of continuous sobriety with, from drugs and alcohol. Amen. Okay. The husband of Jan Johansson, owner of Live Wellness in downtown Salem, helping people achieve optimal health and healing through food and fitness. Mm -hmm. She's amazing. And my wife had recently heard from her hairdresser a little bit about what Jan's doing. Yeah. So yeah. that's pretty cool. You should have her on. Her story is great. Okay. Well, <laughs> Jan, you're now invited. Uh, for your proud dad of three adult daughters, and two grandchildren. Cash turned seven on Halloween, and Cody, who's a girl, born this year on the 4th of July. Yep, two holiday wow. babies. What a cool thing. <laughs> and number five, you sit on Valor Mentoring Board of Directors, providing mentoring to young men to help them lead Christ-centered lives. You're, you're a busy guy, Gabe. Yeah. That's what I know about you. And so let me just kind of uh, preface our conversation. All right. So, hey, I know you're busy, but some questions I really want to talk about is what matters to you mm -hmm. and how do you, how do you not stay busy, but productive? Cause there's a difference there. Cause we can all be really busy. We do sure. all the time. How you doing? I'm busy. Yeah. But busy is not productive. Yeah. Do you agree on that? I agree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's, let's dive in real quick. All right. Um, Cause that's going to come up in part of the story. Cause I'm going to talk to you about morning routine. Mm -hmm. uh, what does your daily schedule look like? Cause I heard you once before on a podcast called Leading Well, mm -hmm. uh, Tim Davis's, and it was really cool. So selfishly, I'm here to learn from you, Gabe, and uh, you're going to unpack some things. But walk us through real quick who Gabe is, where were you born at, and just kind of those early years of your life, and then we're going to get to where you are present day. So sure. walk, me, walk me through that a little bit so we understand who okay. you are. Um, I was born uh, in California. Uh, don't kick me off your show for that. Okay. <laughs> Won't kick you off, man. I got to Oregon in 1989, so I, I well, feel Well, the cutoff like was 1990, so okay, yeah. Okay. Been... I'm a native now, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was uh, I was born to uh, my parents, Oli and Celinda. They um, had been previously married, and each had had a son before uh, they had me. And I, I came along, I was a little tight, four pounds, 12 ounces, premature. 
Uh, spent the first few weeks in the hospital. And back in those days, your parents didn't stick around with you. They sent, sent my parents home. Um, and they lived in Redding when I was born. And I had to be born in uh, Sacramento, UC Davis. And so beginning of life was, um, you know, I guess I was sort of, uh, I, I was not on an incubator or anything like that. So I made it. I, th- I thrived. I was, I was a, a pretty good kid growing up. My, my mom's son, uh, my half-brother, lived with us. And uh, when I was five years old, he died in a car accident, tragically, uh, drinking and driving. And um, my whole life, I think, and, and I've, I actually spoke at uh, Dick with Nell's Food for Thought and kind of shared my story about this. But my whole life has sort of in some way been defined by alcohol and drugs. And that was kind of the beginning of it for me. And so um, that was the impetus for my dad to really dive into uh, drinking, had a hard time coping with that loss of, mm. of my brother. And um, anyway, so I grew up uh, kind of with my mom and my dad. Uh, you know, he worked a lot. He was in the car business. And, uh, you know, we, I lived in an alcoholic home. He was not a bad guy. He didn't, you know, beat me or anything like that. But, um, you know, it was still an alcoholic home. Yeah. And, and I knew I, it, was, it was, you know, brought to my attention often that we were a dysfunctional family. That's, that was kind of the terminology they used back then. And, um, but my dad was fairly successful. He was, uh, you know, he worked hard and, and provided for us. And my mom did a good job of taking care of me. So I didn't, I didn't want really for anything. I had a good uh, overall upbringing. It just maybe uh, wasn't the traditional father and mother home that most kids would, you know, aspire to have or or wish to have. Um, Interestingly enough, my dad got sober uh, when I was fairly young. So I was, uh, was a teenager. I was 15 or 16 years old when he got sober. And um, so... I guess my formative years, I was with mom. And then um, shortly after he got sober, I got my girlfriend pregnant. And so I ended up becoming a dad. Uh, this is why I have three adult daughters. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly young to have grandkids. Yeah. Um, but started in high school. So I got married in between my junior and senior year of high school. Okay. And of course, at that stage of life, it became time to learn how to provide for a family. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad wasn't one to to prop me up and to, uh, you know, just hand me everything that I might need. So he he made me earn it. And but I, I did get the opportunity and I was already working in his business. He owned the Nissan dealership here in town. We were over on Market Street for about 20 years. So I got thrusted into the uh, wild world of car business. I spent a little over two decades doing that. Um, and so for the next two decades, I, I spent most of my parental time with dad. I went from mom to dad and I still hung out with mom and she was part of my life. But being in a car dealership, I, for anybody who's listening that knows someone in the car business or is in the car business, you know that uh, it is a demanding career and it takes a lot of time. So you end up spending, um, you know, you work 10, 12, 14 hour days, sometimes six days a week. And I did that for a long time, no weekends off and that sort of thing. So, uh, so dad and I got to spend a lot of time together. And he really put a lot of wisdom into me. He was not an easy guy to work for. The car business is already hard enough. Working in a family business is even harder. And uh, and our store w- did okay, but it was not, um, you know, it was not a thriving uh, enterprise. It, it really took a lot of effort just to kind of keep things going in in that store. So I learned a lot about business and survival and. Um, I'm really grateful for the years that I had. I got, in in retrospect, I wish I hadn't uh, had to go 20 years. <laughs> I wish I could have done it in maybe five or ten, uh, but that's okay. You know, yeah. God God had a plan, and for me, it was on my heart to to be not in the car business. I wanted to do something else, and so my dad got. Uh, he started to show some signs of he had kind of an illness that he got in I think around 2009, right around the crash. Uh, he started to have some health problems and he decided he wanted to sell the store. He was really concerned about me and what I was going to do. And I told him I was concerned about him. And so we kind of did this back and forth. No, I'm worried about you. No, I'm worried about you. And um, he decided that it was time to sell. And so uh, we sold the dealership and uh, it was it was really a blessing 
for me, um, it gave me the opportunity to get out and do something else. I, I had some other offers in, in the car business in that world. Uh, and I have a great deal of respect for my car dealer friends and the people that are in the, in the car business. It's a very difficult way to earn a living. It really, it, for me anyway, it was, it was not, it was a lot of fun at times, yeah. but it was a really difficult way to earn a living. And, um, anyway, so I had, um, I had built a relationship with a guy uh, named Brian Miles. Brian owned at the time uh, Shelter Management Inc., which is SMI. We now call ourselves SMI. Um, and he had started uh, SMI Commercial Real Estate, which today is SMI Real Estate. Mm -hmm. And um, we were actually in a Bible study together. And to, we can go back to this later and talk about you know drugs and alcohol and all that. But the way I met Brian was through recovery. And so I was part of a group that, um, you know, we were, we were helping each other stay sober and we decided to start a Bible study and Brian wanted to join that Bible study. And so I got to know Brian and one day sitting in Bible study, Brian looked over at me and he says, what are you going to do when you guys sell the dealership? And I said, well, I don't know, maybe I'll come help you sell apartments, you know, just yeah. kind of joking. Yeah. And he called me the next day and he said, I want to take you to lunch. And so we went went out to Venti's on South Commercial and we sat there. I remember it like it happened yesterday. And he sat me down and basically I couldn't understand all the things he was saying, but the basic gist over the years, I've kind of pieced together that conversation again, is he was offering me a chance to be his exit partner and to come into the brokerage. And he would teach me uh, how to broker real estate. And his, um, he had, he had, kind of, I guess, one caveat. There was one rule. He wasn't going to bring me in and teach me unless I would be an investor. And so he started talking a little bit about what that meant. And I, I, my response to it was, can we skip the <laughs> brokerage part and go straight into investing? Yeah. He said, no, you've got to get in and you know get your feet wet, learn what a deal is, learn how to find a deal and mm -hmm. win a deal and how to value a now, This is back and in 2009? This is, this is happening in like 2011. Okay. You met him in 2009, 2010, um, 2011? Yeah, I met, I met Brian earlier on. I met him probably in, I got sober in 04. Uh, I met him around that time. So it was yeah. probably 04, 05 okay, okay. that I met him. So this is this is a good uh, five, six, seven years later. Interesting. It takes I've, time to- yeah, to yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it okay. wasn't just like we met one day and here, here it goes. And, and we really didn't have a super close relationship. I just knew him. He actually was the one who brought um, the Celebrate Recovery Program to Salem, him and his wife, Kathy, uh, who also owned SMI with him. Um, they were um, – they they were at Bethany Baptist out on uh, South Commercial, and they brought Celebrate Recovery. And so uh, I got introduced to Brian and Kathy through a, a friend, Brent Culver, who yep. owns State Farm, uh, the Brent Culver State Farm on Liberty Street here yeah. in Salem. His wife, um, Kelly, is actually the director of marketing for SMI. So <laughs> the way this all comes together is very interesting because uh, my path into drugs and alcohol, my path out, led me into a world I wouldn't have normal I wouldn't have normally been introduced to, and it led me to people in my life. Um, and I guess you know when everybody goes and, and looks at their life in reverse, and you look at that timeline and who you met and what happened, mm -hmm. all those doors were open. You know, God opened those doors. As I started, as I made the decision to turn my will and my life over to his care and to surrender my drug and mm -hmm. my alcohol addiction to him and, uh, and to ask him to guide me and to show me the way, I started meeting people. And it wasn't just about getting sober yeah. is what I found out. It was about, uh, you know, enriching my life both spiritually, emotionally, materially. It was it was fully uh, faceted. It wasn't, it wasn't just let's get Gabe sober. It was something totally different. Yeah. And, um, I think about that sometimes cause I wonder, you know, like if, uh, I had if I had never been addicted to drugs and alcohol, what would have happened? I wouldn't have met these people. Well, maybe I end up in a similar spot doing, you know, in a different way or yeah. whatever, who knows what the outcome is. But Everything in my life today that I enjoy having is is all because of that decision that I made um, to give up and to stop running the show and uh, and to let God take control of my life, especially when it comes to addiction. Yeah. And uh, I don't know that I would have ever got to that point in life if I hadn't hit a bottom 
uh, in, in, in with drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And just to your point, if somebody were to meet you today and they go, Hey, just met, I met Gabe. And so the, the, the word on the street is Gabe's a pretty cool dude, right? That's what I hear all the time. And I can vouch that you're a cool dude. And, <laughs> but there's a history. And, but if somebody's meeting you for the first time, they might say, Gabe's successful. He's got a great marriage. He's got grandkids. Life has been just perfectly, uh, it's been perfect for Gabe. And <laughs> knowing the backstory that we all have a story, I just want, I want people to really get that success is built on failure. Because without failure, there's no thing called success. Mm -hmm. And so I think what you're really bringing to light is <laughs> life hasn't been perfect for you, Gabe. Not even close. <laughs> and then those, those moments, like you took us back to a conversation you had with Brian at Vinti's. You, you, you have the name, the date, the location. Was that a pivotal moment in your life? It was. Okay. Yeah, absolutely right. it was. Um, yeah, and, and to go to your point about failure, you know, it, I I I feel like almost everything I've ever done in life, I've failed. Um, I've had two failed marriages. Uh, I don't feel like my car career was entirely successful. I mean, I feel like that that was a partial failure. I've started other businesses that failed. Um, I, I think for every success I have, I have at least nine failures and some of my failures are like catastrophic. Oh. They're not little oops, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, to, to get married in high school, you know, yeah. just to start have out and have a baby in yeah. high school. I mean, we had two by the time uh, we were 19 years old. And so like it sets your life out on a whole new course. I mean, those are not, those, you know, and I'm not going to say my kids are a mistake, but it probably wasn't the wisest decision <laughs> to be having children while I was in high school and early in college. So um, that, you know, to, to kind of talk a little bit about, um, you know, where that first failure came from with drugs and alcohol is I, um, you know, I went through a divorce pretty young. So now I've got two kids. I'm 19 years old. It, it just took a couple more years. I'm, I'm like 21, 22 years old. Mm -hmm. And I'm going through a divorce and it just rocked my world. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just sent me into um, a spiral. And part of it was, well, you know, everybody, when they get married, they say, this is it. I'm never, you know, I'm never going to get divorced. As a kid, you may say, I'm never going to smoke. I'm never going to drink. Uh -huh. I'm never going to get a divorce. I'm never going to do these things. Right. Yeah. And so I was, I was like that. I wanted to, I wanted to have all successes. I didn't want to have, I didn't want to have a lot of failure. Mm -hmm. And, um, so to have that first marriage fail was, was definitely, um, that was a life changing moment for me. I, I felt like, a couple of things. I felt like one, I had, I had really failed Two, now I have these kids and I'm really attached to my kids. I want to be a good dad. And how do you, how do you manage that in a split home? And I'm, you know, I'm still very young and now of course divorce can be financially catastrophic. Mm -hmm. So now I've got child support, alimony and all these things. Um, it was, it was not a great way to start my, my young adult life. The other part of it was, is I really felt like I had missed out. I was, I was a good kid. I got good grades. I graduated. I went to school. I went to, you know, I was in college for a couple of years. I got good grades in college. Um, overall, I was, I was not really a troublemaker. I mm -hmm. was, I was a pretty good kid. My parents thought I was, you know, I was, I was not much trouble to them. They never knew I was doing anything I shouldn't be doing until I came home and told them there was a grandbaby on the way, which, uh, that was a pivotal moment also. Yeah, yeah. But uh, going back to the first failed marriage, I, I really felt like maybe I had messed up. I had missed out on these college years and my friends were out partying and, you know, dating and having this sort of beginning to their adult lives where they were experiencing things that I didn't experience because I was going to work every day and working hard to support a family. And so I, at that point, sort of reinvented myself and I decided, well, I really screwed up. I'm, I, I need to go back and, and fix this. I need to, you know, FOMO. I, I, I missed out. Like I got to go back and I got to, I got to hurry up. I got to go make up for, for everything that I missed out on. And so I just reinvented myself as a wild man. And, you know, I was a happy drunk and I was a party animal. People mm. loved being around me. And I was, you know, I was doing all the things that, you know, I was 
drawn a crowd. People wanted to follow me around. Mm-hmm. I was picking up the tab and, you know, it was, it was exciting. It was, it, you know, but. Got some new friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lots of new friends. Yeah. Um, but I just, I, I decided it was time to be a wild man. And I think that's just how I coped with life. I didn't, I didn't know how to, um, I didn't know how to cope with that loss at a young age. And I decided uh, alcohol was, was the way to do it. And alcohol opened up, opened a whole new world to me. Um, not a good one. Um, but it, it opened up a whole new world and, um, you know, car business, it sort of attracts an addictive personality type sales and retail and that sort of thing. So I was already surrounded by partying types and that sort of thing. So it all, it all just, it all just sort of fit together, but you know, it didn't take long, a few years of that. And and then I got introduced to drugs and, um, you know, from cocaine to meth to pills to whatever else you want to take. Um, you know, I just, I just sort of went into a downward spiral. My, my active using years were only from about age 20, 21 to 28 when I got sober. Okay. I only went for about seven or eight years. And when I got to 28, um, I was convinced I was going to die. I, I felt in my heart of hearts that I was not going to live to see 30. Hmm. And, you know, nobody was stopping me. Yeah. I didn't have an intervention. I didn't get put in rehab. I didn't get arrested. I had plenty of opportunities for all the above. And somehow I was able to talk my way out of, you know, every every situation Real quick, were you a believer at this time? I know you came. Yeah, to I was. I was raised as a as a believer. My my family, um, my dad's family moved over from Norway in the late forties, and they were Lutheran in Norway. When they got to Utah, uh, they got converted to be Mormon. Okay, and so when my mom and dad met, my mom. Um, my mom had kind of gone to church with friends and things when she was in high school, but she really hadn't quite picked, you know, decided for herself what her faith was. And so when uh, when I was born, I was actually baptized in the Mormon church when I, when I was a baby. But when I was about three years old, my mom became a Christian, mm. and it took a little while to get my dad on board uh, down the road. But he, uh, he ended up uh, getting saved and getting sober, and he, he died a few years ago, but he had about 28 years of sobriety, no and he was a, a tremendously faithful man uh, and, a, and a true man of God. So his his uh, you know his story very much like mine is he started off life as the party animal, married a couple times, kids, yeah. the whole thing, and just sort of um, you know crashed and burned. It took him a little longer before he he got sober, but um, but yeah, I mean when you're when you're when you've got the gift of gab. It can be dangerous, you know. I've always, I've always said that I feel like, um, you know, that if you look at uh, the statistics, which is kind of scary to look at for alcoholism, like six percent of alcoholics die sober. That's just alcohol. Okay, is is very, very low success rate. Mm. It's it's really sad. And you start to mix drugs in there, that number drops mm. precipitously. And you had both. Uh, both. Yeah. And here you and, are. And, and so um, so that is, I believe, why why I'm still on this planet. I think God had a purpose for yeah. keeping me here to tell this story yeah. is that um, there is hope. There is hope. And for those that are listening who are struggling with addiction or have a family member who are struggling with addiction, um, you know, the, God, God can do anything. And... Uh, for me, I just had to. I just had to get out of the way. But having the gift of gab and being a functional alcoholic, somebody who you know, you know, people who uh, just somehow seem to get away with it. You know, every time you see them, they've got a drink in their hand, but they're happy-go-lucky. Nobody's, you know, they don't have family telling them to stop. They don't have a judge telling them to stop. You know, they're just able to sort of just do it. Though, though, that's what we call a functional alcoholic okay. or a functional addict. And the the numbers of those folks, which I believe I was a functional, you know, I'm here I am wearing a suit, driving a nice car, running a running a business, showing up, suiting up, you know, not late for work, not missing days, yeah. producing providing for my family. Everybody, everybody likes Gabe. Everybody's happy. You know, nobody, it wasn't, 
it wasn't hurting anybody else all that much. Maybe my, my second wife really took the brunt of it because she met me in the middle of my addiction, but, um, not, not a lot of people were, um, rooting for me to get sober Mm. or, or, or even trying to force me into getting sober. Right. And so that, that is scary when you're, when you're, the, on the addict side of that and you realize you're getting away with it and nobody's stopping you. For me, what happened was I got so scared. And what I say is I got more scared of dying than I was of living mm-hmm. because that's what drugs and alcohol are. You're just running. You're just running from life. It's too much. It's, can't handle it. Mm-hmm. You're just, you know, you had a bad day at work need a glass of wine, need a beer, you know, you want to go out with friends, you're meeting some people you don't normally hang out with, you're a little nervous, you know, some social lubricant to kind of help, you know, hmm. ease ease the tension in the room or whatever. Alcohol is really used um, in our in our culture uh, in many ways. I mean, there's everything is an excuse to drink. Every holiday, you know, for me, it didn't matter if the sun came out or it didn't come out. Yeah. If it, you know, I only I only drank on days that ended in Y. And that's what I said. <laughs> and, my, and, my okay. da- and my dad would always say one, one is not enough and two is too many. And I would say, no, one is not enough and a thousand is not enough. Like I, I literally have this thing where if I drink – I don't stop until I'm blacked out laying in a ditch somewhere. Like it's just, I mean, from the very first time I ever drank, I drank all the way to, to alcohol poisoning. I mean, I drank to oblivion. So, Mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, there's, there's a saying, they, they talk about how every alcoholic's fantasy is to drink like a normal person. And for me, that is not true. I've never once in my life, wanted to drink like a normal person. And you said, you know, somebody asked me once to to describe what I thought hell was. I said, offer me one beer every day for the rest of my life. I have to drink one beer every day. You drink because you get the, you get it in your system and the obsession kicks in. And all you can think about is where's the next one going to come from? It just doesn't, it doesn't stop. I mean, it, it truly is an insidious disease and it's, it's, um, you know, it's mental illness, it's spiritual bankruptcy. It's, it's a physical addiction. I mean, it just is probably the only disease known to man that that just affects every part of your being. And I just I'm not here to tell everybody to stop drinking, um, but I just don't see what alcohol does for anybody that's positive. Yeah. So right there you nailed it. Well, you know, as you as you think where you're out a day, Gabe. So I, I look at you as a very successful guy. I literally do. Like I look at you and I don't know any of that past. Yeah, I think we all have a history. I don't think about it. you probably do. It probably you think about it, um, which helps you get your true north on Christ, because that's the only answer we have. So as you fast forward, uh we'll, we'll talk about marriage, we're gonna talk about business, but I want to talk about morning routine. Like what does a day look like for you? Sure. And then and then the the question that I keep asking people is, hey, I'm on this guy named Gabe on my show, and and uh, he's he's the apartment broker. That's what you're known as, but you're you're more than just that. But how do people get started in real estate? So that, that'll come later. But okay. talk to me about like your daily schedule, your morning routine. What's important to you and Jan, and how do you live authentically? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna give away a couple secrets. Man, I'm listening. I'm selfishly I'm <laughs> taking notes here. Um. One is is that I'm I'm probably not nearly as busy as most people think I am. I think when you look at what we do, we we've got multiple things going. My wife owns a business. I have multiple businesses. SMI is now a brokerage management company. We have a capital team. We're doing commercial lending. We also have a syndication arm, so we're out buying properties with with our investors. Um, our, our team and, and our employees and broker, as of January 1, we're going to expand into the Portland market. And uh, we're in the process of acquiring and, and merging with another outfit out of Portland. We'll have over 200 people uh, on our team. So wow. em, em, employees and brokers. So SMI is a lot more than me. It's way bigger than I am. Um, and we have very good people. And every business is built around 
people and specifically somebody at the head of each business that uh, is a director uh, of some sorts that's leading that company. So for me, I try to keep myself uh, as a big picture guy. I'm trying to um, not get in the weeds too much. So I, I tend to, um, I tend to direct traffic. <laughs> <laughs> I call myself air, air, you know, air traffic control. Um, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things going on and every day is, is, uh, is super busy. Um, but I love what I do and I'm super passionate about it. And it's just so much fun that I don't really feel like I'm working. Mm. I think that if it felt like work, I would never been able to conjure up enough energy to do right. it, but it just feels like I'm having fun. Yeah. I, and, and have you ever read the book Born to Run? Never it's have. funny. It's funny. I come on podcasts and I always talk about books I read. And the funny thing is, is I don't really read books, but the books I read uh, tend to impact me. Um, this Born to Run book is so much fun to, to read. And it's a, a story about uh, a guy who um, he tracks this, this like ancient Mexican tribe. And these guys are out in the desert and they wear loincloths and they like run through the desert 60 miles a day barefoot. And there's a there's a part of that book where I, I hate to run. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. <laughs> it's just not <laughs> it's not my favorite thing in the in the world to do. When I run, if you took a if you took a picture of me running, it would probably look like you know I'm dying. It's not David, <laughs> it's not it's not gonna look like David Goggins or something. No, like that. It's gonna it's gonna look like torture. Like somebody's okay. tortured me. Like I'm sure the look on my face is is not good. But they. Um, they they make a note about these guys that when they see them running, I mean, they'll be on mile 30 or 40 and they're running and they'll see them coming around a corner and they've just got a big smile on their face. Wow. And they're just- Born to run. They're, yeah, they're just super happy. And so I imagine for me, um, when it comes to productivity and, and my work life, um, I feel like for me, I'm just smiling all day. Things Things are going wrong. All the time. I mean, my I've set my phone down right now. I guarantee you there's 10 things that have gone <laughs> wrong since we started. Okay. So there's always things that are going wrong. But that gives me an opportunity to help problem solve. And mm -hmm. I just... I just really love it in 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 the wins and the losses and, yeah. and all the above. So my day is... Um, my day is pretty... pretty um, I guess it's pretty full. I try to manage most of my life through email if I can. I spend a lot of time with folks in person. So I meet with my staff. We'll have, you know, each each day of the week sort of has um, a theme to it. And so one day may be for my brokers. One day may be for my property managers. Um, one day may be for my partners on, on projects that we're doing or something like that. Or, or maybe not the whole day, but there's a meeting there. And I try to do those meetings in person. Uh, everything else that's going on, I try to manage through email. And without email, my life would be – it wouldn't work at all. There's no way that I would be able to manage what I manage through email. So I wake up. Uh, you know, I'm a fairly early riser. I mean, right now the time just changed, so it's easy to get up <laughs> at five in the morning, but I'm, I'm probably more like a six in the morning kind of a guy. Okay. Um, and I typically don't hop right out of bed. One of my goals in life is to not have to wake up to an alarm. Mm. I think it's one of the things people hate most about having to work is uh, that feeling of, uh, you know, uh, 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 the noise, man. oh my gosh, I don't want to get up. Um, so I don't wake up to an alarm, typically. We do a very early Bible study on Wednesday mornings, and, and I usually have to set an alarm for that. But the rest of the week, I really don't set an alarm. When I first wake up... Um, I usually read and on, you know, it depends uh, on where I'm at in life and what I'm reading. I can tell you this. Uh, I just thought of this the other day. There was a couple of different years where I did the thing on your phone where you have, I have the Bible app on my phone and you know, you think reading the Bible, you look at a Bible, it's like thousands of pages. Yeah. How could I ever read that? But if you look, pull up this app, it has a thing on there and it sets you up for like 15, 20 minutes a day you read. Yeah. And after not even quite a year, you've read the whole Bible. And I've done that a couple of times, and and when I start my day like that, I've had the best years of my life. Okay. 
best years. Now, I don't do that all the time. I'm not doing it right at this moment. I should be. It's a reminder to myself to do it. Um, but I, I usually wake up and um, kind of get a grip on you know where where the world is at, the world of finance. Where what's the Fed going to do? What are interest rates doing? What's real estate doing? What are my brokers doing? I start getting emails from my team usually at about five thirty or six in the morning. Wow. And so while I'm in bed, one of the great things about smartphones is I don't have to get up and go sit in an office to send emails. So I start firing off emails and answering emails and doing things usually right when I wake up. So I don't really need coffee. When I get up in the morning, I am hardwired. It's As I get a little older, that's changing a bit. But yeah. uh, typically in my past, I, I just, I jump up and I'm, I'm ready to go. Doesn't mean that I'm going to sit there and, and work the whole time, you know, I'll do whatever. But I, I typically make it kind of a slow a slow roll. It might be an hour that I'm I'm in bed uh, doing what I'm doing. Uh, not good for your eyes, by the way, to sit <laughs> there and stare at your phone in the dark. Um, from there, I you know I get ready and and uh, a couple days a week I work out with a trainer. Uh, one other day we do our uh, Bible study. Another day I do an AA meeting. Mm-hmm. I'm typically up and out of the house in the morning fairly early for my first whatever it is I'm, I'm going to be doing. And I'm not, you know, I'm not ready for the day yet. I've done a little bit of work. I'm going to zip out. I'm going to do a workout. I'm going to do a Bible study. I'm going to do whatever I'm doing. And then I come home and then I start to get ready. And usually while I'm getting ready, I'm working. And so by then the phone's ringing, you know, a lot of my phone calls are me. I'm standing in the bathroom naked trying to get ready (laughs) and I'm on the phone or I'm sending an email or I'm sending a text or whatever. So the day is already going, but I'm not at the office yet. And so I like that. I don't mind working as long as I can work wherever I want. Wherever you want to be. Yeah. I, uh, 20 years in cars, I sat at that car dealership, 2908 Market Street. And um, 20 years of my life, I sat there and I felt like I was a goldfish in a fishbowl. Yeah. Like I couldn't leave. And everybody else could come and go and see me when they wanted to see me, but I could I could never get out of that fishbowl. And so one of my goals in getting out of the car business mm-hmm. was to be in a, I'm okay with working all the time. I just yeah. don't want to be stuck yeah. in a building where I feel like I can't leave. It was like a prison sentence. So, you know, typically by then I'm off to, I'm off to a meeting, uh, either with my team or with somebody else. And I try to, I try, you know, my wife's a nutritionist. We talked about Jan a little bit. So when I can, I try to, I try to come home for lunch and oftentimes I'm in lunch meetings and stuff, which is fine. Um, and then, uh, you know, every day is a little different for me. I, I've got, you know, there's, there's a lot of moving parts and I just kind of go wherever I'm needed. And I try to wrap my day up. I try to be home by five or six in the evening. Oftentimes, I'll still keep working until seven or eight o'clock at night from home. Yeah. Um, there are some days where I try to just work from home because, quite honestly, I get more done when I'm at home. I know some folks are distracted by kids or dogs or whatever else is happening in the house. And, and maybe there's work to do around the house and you sort of mm-hmm. think like, ah, I can't really stay focused. For me, that's not the case. For me, if I want to get focused on, if I really need to get something done, I almost have to hide out at the house. Because if I go, I have a couple of different offices. If I go there, I'm going to be bombarded, Yeah, um, which I like. I like being around our staff and uh, and doing the things that they need me to be doing. But if I really need to focus on something, I'll, I'll stay at home. So I don't know. That's, it's not, I don't think it's rocket science. I don't know if that helps anybody, but um, I think I, I will say there's a couple of things it, that have been uh, impactful in my life. And that is, um, you know, there was a, a military guy, I think he was a, a general or something who talked about how the first thing you do when you wake up is you make your bed. And it sounds silly, but I think his point was you want to start out the day accomplishing something you want to have you want to start with a win you know and sometimes life can be so hard and there's so many irons in the fire and so many things you got to do that to start your day with i made my bed sounds dumb but it's a win i mean you started with a win you did something you you checked something off off the box and for me um it's super important to i mean the second i get out of bed make the bed. I mean, it, it. I don't even go to the bathroom first. I mean, I get up and I make my bed and that sets the, that sets the tone for my day that, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to get things done. And, uh, and that's the first thing I get done. I get to check that off. 
It's a great book. Yeah, I've, I've read the book, book, Make Your Bed, and so my wife and I make oh, our bed. Oh, it's a book. See, it I don't even book. know if I read that book. Yeah, it's a great great book. In fact, it, for your team members, it may be make one of the best. Make Your Bed, is that what it's called? It's one of the best books you can probably give out, but yeah. You know, so as we dive into, and I appreciate you telling us kind of like your, your morning routine. It's important, you know, for years, you know, I, I probably spent where I didn't have a morning routine, just kind of like whatever I felt like, but really when you actually consistently have a routine. It's consistent. And that's the key word is consistency. consistency yeah. Is uh, I've heard from many people who coach me is the key is consistency in whatever you do in life. And if you can remove the thought and just know what you need to do and get up and perform those, you get more done and it takes less energy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you want to become a robot, but it does help. Hey, get up. Yeah. Make your bed. Have a routine. Have a routine. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. You know, the, the, the question that people want to know, Gabe, is, you know, and me too, to be a successful apartment uh, owner or be a part of that community, what's the first step? Sure. Like, that's always like, okay, if you have a billion dollars, that's fine, Gabe. I know how to do that. I don't have a billion or even <laughs> maybe even a million, but how do I get started with yeah. a little bit of money and what's a goal? What's a good mm-hmm. plan? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, how do you get started? You know, I I have to tell you that I've been doing this now for a little while. Real estate's been, what are we, in 2023? So it's been almost 12 years that I've I've been in this world. Um, I don't think money has a lot to do with it. I think there are people with money that don't get into real estate or or don't uh, don't have good instincts when it comes to investing. Um, I think it takes imagination. And I think it takes guts. Hmm. And I think that uh, a lot of folks want to be successful or they want to get into real estate and they just don't have the guts. And what is that? Why don't you have the guts? Is it fear? Fear of what? Fear that I'm going to fail? Well, maybe you'll have, maybe you will. You probably will. Hopefully yeah, you will. Yeah. You need to fail. Yeah. Try not to fail as as bad as I failed. Or me. <laughs> or me. <laughs> yeah, we've got some stories. Oh, um, yeah. You know, that it's painful. It's painful to fail. I, I, I don't know. I think um, I'll say that over the last decade or so, I've, I've coached a lot of folks and a lot of clients who wanted to get in. And um, they will ask that question is how do I get into my first deal? And everybody sort of thinks, well, you got to have money to make money and I don't know what a deal is and how do I get financing and so on and so forth. And I, I get it. I mean, it's not, it's, it, it, it isn't necessarily easy. I do real estate as an art form. It's not science for me. Yeah. It, it's, it's art and creativity. It's creativity. It's looking at a deal from multiple angles mm-hmm. and not just the same angle everybody's looking at. Everybody's looking at, I got to find the lowest price. I got to find the best bank. I got to get the lowest rate. I got to do whatever, right? And that's, to me, sure, you can do that. It's boring and your chances of success are probably slim. Yeah, You're just out doing what everybody else is doing. So I try to do, I, I run opposite the pack. I'm, I'm a contrarian. And um, I believe that there are other ways to buy real estate. I believe that um, through creative financing structures, seller carries, um, I think if you really did want to do it, you do a little bit of research. There's, it's, it's wonderful what's happening in the world today. There's a generation of people coming up that are in their teens and early 20s who are exposed to podcast shows like this and, and YouTube videos and things where the, the wealth of all, of all of this knowledge is at your fingertips. It's there. Like you don't have to go to Harvard to learn this. You can. In learn fact, that might ruin you. You probably would because you become a scientist, not a possibly uh, an artist. Quite possibly. Yeah. I think if you want to be if you want to be a successful investor in any asset type, including real estate, you really have to look in the mirror and ask yourself, you know, who am I and what can I what can I handle? You know, because this is not. Uh, it's not. It's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. 
Um, and for some of us, it's just a lot of fun. <laughs> and we might, <laughs> I joke around with one of my partners, we say we have a screw loose. And to some folks, when they would, if they would hear what we're going through and the, and the problems we're trying to solve, it would just crush them emotionally. Yeah. They would just give up and crawl in a hole and yeah. say, that's it, I'm, I'm done. Um, and, and we just almost thrive on it. It's like, oh my gosh, we've got this big problem. Let's figure out a way to, let's figure out a way to solve it. So, um, I think for me, just to just to give you, and I've I've talked about this before. If anyone's ever heard me talk, I um, it took me about three years. So I, so going back to Brian, he sat me down. He said, "Okay, I'm going to teach you how to do real estate." And we spent three years together, and uh, I started brokering deals. And then I really wanted to buy something, and so I was out looking for stuff. Hey, Brian, what do you think of this one? What about that one? And he was super conservative. Definitely was not going to put us into a deal that. Um, was going to lose. It had to be a going to win for sure type of type of a situation. And so we found this duplex down in Albany and uh, it was a former meth lab. Very, very fitting for my story. Um, and they had certified it to be inhabitable again. And uh, somebody had let it, you know, just go, go to pot and it um, roof was caving in on it. It was, nobody was living in it. You know, it was, it was needed a lot of work, but we found this thing. This is, you know, this is eight years ago or something. It took me three, three years to find the deal. And, um, actually I think Brian found the deal. So it didn't happen overnight. So you're saying it, you said one day you made a decision. So, so literally imagine I'm brokering deals. I'm learning about how to value a deal. I'm helping people close on apartment transactions. I'm doing fairly sizable transactions and I still haven't bought a single piece of real estate. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to figure out how am I going to get my name? And I'm working you know, I'm nine to five every day, five days a week, working in real estate, looking for a deal. It still took me three years mm. before I found a deal. I wanted Brian to be my partner because I didn't have the guts yeah. to go buy a deal fortitude. by myself. Yeah. I felt like, okay, well, I don't have the guts to do it, but if I go with somebody who I trust, maybe we can get a deal done. Well, to this day, every piece of real estate I own is with partners. I don't own a single piece of real estate by myself. So- Maybe I don't even have the guts, right? Um, but that's how I solved it. As I said, well, there are things I don't know about real estate. I'm going to go find somebody who knows some things that I don't know, yeah. and I'm going to have them help me. So maybe that person has more experience or more money or whatever the case may be. Um, and so all of my partners to this day, I've had some bad partnerships <laughs> and we've lost a lot of money <laughs> with bad partners, but my favorite thing about real estate is partners and the most dangerous part of real estate is partners. Got it. And so a lot of folks who are super risk averse will not take a partner and that's okay, but you're going to have to be comfortable moving at a much slower speed. Mm. You're going to have to find your way to wiggle into that rental house or buy that duplex and just slowly start to grow your portfolio. It depends on what you're really trying to accomplish. Some folks don't want partners and there's no, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, what I want to do requires partners because I, I want to own as many doors as I can get my name on. Um, and I can't do it without help. I can't do it without people that have experience and, and time and money. And those partnerships have taught me the things that now I make a good partner because I've learned those things from from quick from question for you. So how many total partners do you think you have and how many doors do you own with those partners if you had to guess? I'm pretty sure <laughs> well, you probably know, but I don't. <laughs> roughly. Uh, okay. The portfolio is roughly a thousand doors. Okay. Uh, it's not all SMI managed. A lot of it, as a matter of fact, probably 80% of it is is not. We, we use other management companies outside of just, just because they're outside of the SMI management zone, yep. essentially. So we're buying in uh, in Vancouver and Astoria and Seaside and Portland and Roseburg and places where SMI isn't yet. Gotcha. We're, we're, so we're basically being, Oregon, a little bit of Washington. Oregon, but, Washington right now. We're yeah. looking uh, across the, the nation at other, other ways to get into deals in other yeah. states. But um, partnership-wise, I have a few main partnerships that I buy within, um, and then I have a few other partnerships as well. I would say total, um, let's call it five different partnerships, uh, total people. Some of those are syndications. So, you know, so there's a couple, like the SMI fund is a syndication. So we bring in investors and, yeah. and that's probably not what you're asking in terms of partners. But um, 
I, I deal re- on a regular basis with at least a handful of, of partners. And you're open to more partners if there's a deal that's oh, to be done? Oh, of course. Okay. Of course. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I, I think every it's really important coming into a deal to figure out what the partner brings and why you're partnering. And it, it's important to know exit strategy and why we're buying it, how long we're going to hold it, what our goals are, who's going to be doing what. And really where a partnership gets in trouble is is when you do a, a deal and then you know it goes sideways mm-hmm. and now somebody's got to write a check and one partner can write a check, the other partner can't write a check and then everything just, it, it all falls apart. So I think that one, one piece of advice would be um, you know, make sure you're not partnering with folks that can't write a check. Um, you know, find find people that uh, you know, maybe maybe the deal size is important. Maybe you guys should be out buying a fourplex instead of a twenty unit because you know if things go south. You are you still dabbling in the residential, the one to four unit, or are you really five and or your apartment only is. Is it both? <laughs> is it yes? And. We, so we have a saying: it's buy all of the real estate, and it it doesn't mean that we're. I mean, one of the things that separates the SMI brokerage from other brokerages is that I really, um, I promote a uh, an investor mindset. I want our brokers to own real estate. I want our clients to own real estate. I want I want to own more real estate. I want all I want everybody to own more real estate. I believe that real estate is the greatest wealth creation tool in the history of man. Mm. I believe that I have sort of uh, found a formula that works, and I don't feel like God put me here to keep that to myself. I feel like I should share it. And so I share that with our brokers. We share it with our clients. Sometimes we partner with our clients. We're very open about the things that mm. we're doing. But I feel, you know, there are some of my competitors and, you know, they're my colleagues. We're friendly competitors, but we share a different view because they they feel like if their brokers are out buying real estate – they're competing with the clientele mm-hmm. and they shouldn't be doing that. They should put their head down, do deals, make fees, whatever. I feel like it's, uh, it's, that's not right. To me, there's something doesn't sit with me well with that. I feel like here you have these folks that are real estate professionals yeah. and they need to own real estate. They don't need to buy every deal and we can't buy every deal, but we need to own real estate. Like what, what, why are we doing well, it's this? It's like a, a residential real estate agent who sells real estate, but doesn't own their own home. I can remember literally 24, 25 years ago, uh, I was working with a real estate agent who had never bought her own home. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, how do you how do you sell real estate in, in, without owning it yourself? Do you not believe in it? What is that? And I think it does affect the way you do business. Well, it comes back to the guts thing a little bit. I mean, it takes guts to yeah. buy. And uh, and hopefully, you know, I, I can show our clients and my brokers that it's okay to buy something. It's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to do a deal. It's not the right deal. There's ways to get out. There's other, there's, there are options, but, um, but we all need to own more real estate. I mean, everybody needs to own real estate. You need, and, and, whether that's a house or a duplex or you're trying to build a portfolio of thousands of doors, it doesn't really matter. You need to own something because you need to have assets. And the way the world is going, I won't go too far down the rabbit hole of, of the way they manipulate our money supply. But, uh, you know, we talk about the Fed all the time now. Are they going to raise the rate, lower the rate, you know, quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, blah, blah, blah. All that really means is they're manipulating the system. In which direction are they manipulating the system, right? So right now they're pulling their chips off the table. They're sucking liquidity out of the market. They're just, mm. they're, they're playing the game. But the thing that we don't talk a lot about, which is interesting to me, is uh, money supply. And and my my mentor today is a partner of mine. He He's very successful. He owns about a half a billion in assets. I've helped him acquire a lot of those. He's been my number one client became a really close friend and now he's a mentor and now we own a sizable portfolio together. And he's the one that that brought this to my attention when we first met. He started, he was talking about hyperinflation, mm. money creation, things that nobody talks about. And so in the beginning, I was like, I don't care. I just want to sell you something and make a real estate fee. Like, tell me what a deal is so mm-hmm. I can get paid, right? And then over time, he started telling me what was going to happen next in the market and how it was going to change the values and what 
what they were going to do to sort of manipulate the the asset values and things. And uh, and everything he told me was going to happen, happened. <laughs> and, and when that, you stack up a few of those and you go, okay, this guy is onto something. I call him the Willy Wonka of real estate. So when you first talk to him, you'd wonder like, eh, is this guy right? Or is he cuckoo? You know, like, I mean, it's, you have to sort of make that decision, yeah. but, um, but then you listen to him more and you start to realize that he's onto something and he sounds a little cuckoo because nobody else is talking like this, but there's something very real going on there. And, uh, he, he pointed my interest into watching how much money they print. And it's amazing since COVID 40% of all dollars ever printed in all time have been printed since COVID. Lovely. Now, they're pulling their chips off the table right now. They've reduced that money supply by about 5%. But 40%. So you remember at the beginning of COVID, everyone, people are calling me left and right going, Gabe, what's going to happen? You know, are there going to be a bunch of deals? Are prices going to go down? Are we going to be able to go out? And, you know, I mean, the, the phone's ringing off the hook. You know, it's like we're shutting down. We're like, don't leave your house. Like this isn't that first three weeks where we're all sitting at home going, oh, my gosh, like is the world coming to an yeah. end or what's happening? And I literally, my phone is ringing constantly with people going, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And as we watched that unfold, you know, we saw rents start to go up. We saw values start to go up. And, you know, everybody's going, man, it just went up 5% or it just went up 10%. And I said, no, it's going to go up 40%. Well, how do you know? Well, they just printed 40% <laughs> more money. <laughs> Magic. Magic. <laughs> so it's not that the uh, it's not that the buildings went up in value. It's that. You, the purchasing power of your dollar dropped in value. And, and inflation is really weird because a dollar will buy a can of Coke at a different inflation rate than it will buy a building or a computer or a car or a college education. Like everything is sort of manipulated on its own level based on yeah. government subsidies or, you know, whatever whatever else that they're, they're using. So um, – but, the, but in the end, the way that it all shakes out is that now you have more money in the system and it's chasing hard assets, hard assets. So uh, you could be in stocks or bonds or Bitcoin or whatever. I mean, I don't do those other asset types because I don't understand them. I study them. I'm interested in them, but I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand what makes them move. I understand what makes real estate move and I understand how to control the values and how to push appreciation into buildings and be a better operator and that yeah. sort of thing. So you can feel it. You can touch it. You can smell it for better or worse. And it's just real tangible. And so the way that they manipulate the money supply, um, inflation is really um, – it's a, like a hidden tax. It's a, it's a really damaging thing uh, on the citizens of this country and they do it on purpose. And uh, I don't exactly know why other than there are some folks at the top I'm sure that, that, that get you know, really rich off of this. But um, if you watch money supply and, and you go, OK, where is this headed? Well, the government keeps spending more money. Mm -hmm. We keep going into bigger and bigger deficits. When we go into those deficits, what do we have to do? Well, you or I, if we go into a deficit, we go home and say, honey, what are we going to do? We spent all our money and now we can't make the house payment. Well, we've, we've got to figure out how to rectify that and get our budget in line. The government doesn't really have to do that. They can print money. And so they'll continue to spend and, you know, we won't get political, but we'll get ourselves into some wars that we might not need to be in the middle of. And we'll spend a lot of money on those. And and uh, and then we get ourselves into this deficit spending and then we have to print the money in order to pay those bills. Well, the more money you print when there isn't a, a product or a service that's on the other side of that dollar that you printed, you get inflation because you're imbalanced. You don't have, there's too much money and there's not enough goods or services on, on the other side of it. So you get out of whack. This is not a problem that's going to fix itself. And it's not a problem that they're going to be able to fix. So this is going to be ongoing. Yeah. And what you're going to find is that uh, it isn't people go, oh my gosh, 
it's unaffordable. I can't, uh, you know, I can't afford a home. I can't afford 8% or whatever. And I, and I, and that's all, I mean, I, I understand it, it is, it is not easy and is not affordable. Um, but we're coming into a world where, you know, they've, they've kind of led us on with this lower class, middle class, upper class income levels and all these things. And everybody's out chasing the better education or chasing the better job, uh, you know they're working. They're working to make money, and their money really isn't working for them. There is no assets, and so the the poor don't have assets. the the me, The middle class they really don't have assets either, but they have the ability of credit to be able to go out and borrow money to look like they're rich, but they don't have assets. So the lower and middle classes, what's missing is the asset. They don't have the asset. Commercial real estate, income producing real estate, whether it's residential, retail, industrial, office, whatever it is, the this is the currency of the wealthy. That's what real estate is. Real estate, if you start to look at that as as money, you realize, okay, maybe I should spend a little less time over here chasing these dollars, these taxable dollars mm. that I'm earning, I'm working my tail off to make this money so that they can pull the tax out before I even see my paycheck. And I should start to work a little more on building my asset column. Robert Kiyosaki, Rich oh, Dad, rich poor, dad, dad. poor Dad. I'm just like stack stack the asset yeah. column. Yeah. Right? You gotta have assets. We're moving into a world where that's becoming harder and harder to get those assets, but that's what you gotta do. We're we're gonna be on one side of of the fence. It's either you have assets or you don't have assets. It's it's imperative. We buy real estate with urgency. And I tell my clients to buy real estate with urgency because it is imperative to have those assets. Now, you say, well, how do I get in? Well, one way to get in if you don't have partners and you just want to do it yourself is you go get the highest leverage that you possibly can, borrow as much money as you can. Get cash out your if you're if you've got a a, a family member who's going to leave you an inheritance, yep. <laughs> cash it out now. Um, find a way. That's all I can say. I can't tell you how to do it, but find a way to get into a deal. Uh, you know, borrow the money, beg for the money, do whatever you have to do if it if it is going to take some money. But get a deal where you can put as little money down as possible, so that you can get yourself into the biggest deal you can do with as little money out of pocket as you possibly can, and that's. Leverage. You're leveraging now debt. You're going to lock in your debt at today's value of the yeah. dollar, and then the dollar is going to go down in value. So mm -hmm. you'll be paying that loan back on tomorrow's value, not where you locked in today, right? And so if you borrowed a million dollars today, by the time you pay that loan back in 20 or 30 years, a million dollars isn't a million dollars anymore. Right, a million dollars in thirty years is probably nothing. It's like less than what we consider to be a hundred thousand dollars is today, right? So they're coming out with some new loan programs. I'm sure you know a lot more about them than I do, but now they've opened the door to uh, conventional financing for one to four unit smallplex, five percent down. It used to be, you know, you were five, ten, fifteen, twenty five, or whatever to get into those deals. Now you can buy up to a fourplex with. 5% down. I've been telling th probably thousands of people for the last 10 years to go do an owner-occupied <laughs> duplex, triplex, fourplex. Maybe you live there for a year. Maybe your kid lives there. Whatever you got to do to get in there and get that loan and, and, and have that asset, you can rinse and repeat that. And I believe you can have 10 of those loans. So you could go out over the next 10 years yeah. and have 40 units yeah. in your portfolio 5% down each time, a fourplex. Yeah. Now, I believe these smallplex prices are going to go up yeah. dramatically of be of because of this program. Yeah. So think about it now. That's just going into effect right now in, in November. So think about getting into some of those deals. Um, you know, a fourplex today sells for, you know, anywhere from 600000 to a million bucks, let's say. So on the high end, you're looking for a $50,000 down payment. Yeah. On the low end, you're looking for maybe thirty. Um, thirty or forty, so cool. so thirty to fifty thousand to get your name, and thirty to fifty thousand is a lot of money. I get that, but it's an easier problem to solve to go figure out where you're going to get thirty to fifty than it is to go figure out where you get five hundred. Right. And the way I the way I do this when I said I do real estate as an art form, 
I don't look for the money first to go do the deal. I look for the deal first. And once the you find the money, once the deal is there and I know it's a deal, the money just shows up. The money's there. Yeah. There's plenty of money. This is this like is that. a this is a uh, abundance mindset. Yeah. Okay. Most people think in scarcity mindset. Right. There's not enough deals. There's not enough buildings. There's not enough money. There's not enough partners. There's not enough whatever. Not enough. I don't have, you know, there's just not enough. When you start to look at it like there's plenty, the world is awash in money. There is money everywhere looking for yield. There's part, there are partners, there's lenders, there's investors. There's so many different ways to kinda, raise that capital. Kind of reminds me of the story of the talents. If you go to scripture and you read about the talents. One guy had five, one had two, and one had one. And really, the calling is that we go and invest that money into something. Burying it in your backyard um, is not the wisest thing. In fact, it's maybe a foolish thing to do. So, well, hey, brother, I think we're going to do this again because I think <laughs> you know, we could do a part two <laughs> in about six months. So I'm going sure. to get I'd you on the to. counter for yeah. six months. So I want to, maybe you're at $1,500, maybe it's 2000 <laughs> I don't know what your goals are, but that's just part of the journey. And uh, I just want to say thanks for being on the show, being open, being transparent, letting people see into Gabe's life, realizing that you've had failure like we all have. Don't be afraid of failure. Embrace it. And success does come. And success is not just a monetary thing. It's, hey, how do you treat your wife when you go on vacation? You know, what you know, you have grandkids and it's changed your life, I'll bet. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna wrap up this this podcast. Gabe, just uh, if people want to reach out to you and just say, hey, Gabe, I need to hear more. I want to learn real estate. I want to invest in what you're doing. What's the best way for them to call you, get a hold of you? What do you like? Uh, email. <laughs> email. What's your email, brother? It's easy. It's Gabe, G-A-B-E, at S-M-I-R-E.com. Dude, I love it. Simple. And, and I love that. Yeah, And I one... love to grab coffee. Don't be afraid to reach out. You want to talk more about... Uh, real estate or recovery or anything else. Um, I, I love to sit down and yeah. and you know I will say block out at least ninety minutes because I don't <laughs> I, I don't do thirty and sixty minute meetings. It's I love it. we're gonna spend a little time together. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, thanks for being a part of our show. Thank you, buddy. Thank you for the time each week uh, to be encouraged, challenged, and loved. Remember what Jesus said: "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me." My hope and prayer is that you believe the words of Jesus. We'll see you next week.